massive crabs, saving the big cats, and drinking gin at the end of the world. This week, we're in Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where we try the great dishes of the world at DestinationEatDrink.com and on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. And this week, travel writer Shafik Medji is here to talk about his excursions to Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. But first, if you like the Destination Eat Drink podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps the show, and thank you so very, very much. Shafik Medji is an award-winning travel writer who writes for guidebooks like Lonely Planet, as well as outlets like BBC Travel, Wanderlust, and Adventure Magazine. Last year, Shafik published his travel memoir, Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. Shafik and I talk about his travels in Patagonia and down to Tierra del Fuego, and he tells me about the people who live in this rugged terrain at the end of the world, as well as the dishes he had there, like massive crabs. Shafik also tells me about some places closer to his home in England, like a reclaimed industrial site that's now a biodiverse park, and a rainforest. That's right, a rainforest in the UK. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Shafik, great to have you back on Destination Eat Drink. It's been a while since we've talked, so I'm happy to have you back to talk about uh, Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. Uh, Brent, it's lovely to be talking to you again. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's been far too long. You wrote the chapters about the Chilean Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego for the new edition of Lonely Planet. Tell me a little bit about the actual logistics of getting to Patagonia? Because to me, it seems like such a remote, faraway, exotic place. Is this something that uh, an everyday traveler can do fairly easily? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I've yeah just finished my research trip for uh, the, uh, the forthcoming edition of Planet Chile. And uh, yeah, it, was, it took me to one of my favorite parts of the world, which is uh, Chilean Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. And as you say, the, the the fact that it's so far flung, that it feels so remote, uh, that it feels so far away from all of us here in the, you know in the in the UK, in the US, in in Europe, is is part of the attraction. Ironically, it's actually a bit easier to get to than the, than you might expect um, on the Chilean side. If you if you fly into Santiago, the capital, which is in in central Chile. You can fly down to um, uh, Punta Arenas, which is the biggest city in in Chilean Patagonia. That's about a three and a half hour flight, and it's quite similar with the um, the the Argentine side as well. Tierra del Fuego, which is um, to to provide a bit of geographic context, um, Patagonia is the southern part of South America, and then there's a uh, the Strait of Magellan separates it from the archipelago that is Tierra del Fuego and Tierra del Fuego is a uh, uh, a tangle of islands and uh, channels and uh, very very sparsely populated and then below that there's nothing but some of the roughest seas on earth and Antarctica so so getting to Patagonia is easier than you might expect um you can go yeah you can you can fly and you can go by bus get in onto Tierra del Fuego 
takes a little bit more uh, a little bit more planning and and part of that is is because the, you know, the weather is so unpredictable even at you know we're at the tail end of the summer there now even in the summer it's it's um, it's it's a bit unpredictable this is why I like talking to you, Shafik, because it's very rare that, you know, when I talk to you, it's about a, a Lux city break. You know, you're going <laughs> to these far flung, out of the way places that are hard to get to and, you know, are rather inhospitable, I would say. And I wanted to ask you because I think when we're talking about remote places like this, and Tierra del Fuego, certainly one of the most remote places on earth, when you've got it, whether it's a difficult environment from a climate standpoint or it's remote because of mountains or it's a faraway island. These places, in my opinion, tend to attract a certain type of person, a certain psychological profile that maybe doesn't fit in with quote unquote normal society. And I'm, I'm not using that as a pejorative at all. I'm just saying, you know, it tends to attract maybe a different type of person in this difficult environment. Um, would you agree with that assessment, Chaffik, from your visits to Tierra del Fuego and Patagonia? Yeah, it it it, it, def- it definitely um, you definitely have to be a, a hardy, self-sufficient kind of person to build build a life in in somewhere like Tierra del Fuego in in particular. Uh, probably the best illustration of that is is one of my favorite places, where somewhere I was in uh, just a couple of months ago called Puerto Williams, and Puerto Williams is the southernmost city on Earth. Um, it's uh, it sits on the Beagle Channel, um, has about 2,000 2, people there. And the only way that you can get there is you can fly uh, or you can get there by by ferry. There are no road connections with uh, with the rest of Chile or indeed with with Argentina. Tierra del Fuego is split uh, roughly between Argentina and, uh, and, and Chile, just to provide a bit of context. So Puerto Williams is 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 far flung. It's a long way from anywhere else. You know, this is literally while I was there, I you know traveled along on along to the end of the road, literally, as in there's no way further south that you can drive on earth. So it's it's a it's a particular landscape. It's on the shores of the Beagle Channel, it's backed by an incredible um mountain range, the Dientes de Navarino, which is a place for a wonderful, rugged uh backcountry, uh backcountry trek. Um, and, and 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 you're right in the sense that it, it very much attracts a, a particular kind of people, but it's also more diverse than you might expect. So you know its history is as a, is as a naval base. So roughly half of the population are still uh, serving in the navy, Union staff linked to the, the, the naval base there. There's a, a small uh, indigenous Yagan community and the indigenous peoples of. Uh, Tierra del Fuego and Patagonia are often overlooked um, and have a uh, challenging history, to say the least. But there's 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 a Yarkin community just outside uh, Puerto Williams who um, play a very important role in the um, in in the city. And then there's also and then in the 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 rest of the population made up by um, Chileans, sometimes from Patagonia, but often further afield. You know, many of them had come from. Um, you know, uh, Middle Chile, so Santiago, the biggest city, sometimes from, you know, further north towards the Atacama Desert, complete contrast in landscapes 
uh, you know, one of the driest places on earth to uh, somewhere that's, uh, you know, somewhere that's very, very, very wet and, uh, you know, emerald green and so on. Um, but there's also there's also it tracks because it's such a far from place. The landscape is so dramatic because it's you know essentially it's 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 a romantic place. It's an evocative place. It attracts people from from further afield. So you know I I, I met a uh, you know a wonderful um, uh, Austrian woman there who was who came to teach and then fell in love and ended up staying. Um, there's there's a great um, Colombian restaurant there. So if you want a touch of the uh, the Caribbean at the opposite end of the Americas, you can uh, you can sit down for some some good hearty food there and some uh, some excellent Colombian music. Um, you know, I also you know, also met a you know an, an Argentine uh, uh, gardener and travel writer who lives there, who again is from kind of the, the, the central part of um, Argentina. So there's a real mix of people that, you know, despite being, a, you know, quote unquote, the end of the world, um, it's it's a lot more cosmopolitan than you might expect. But everyone loves the, loves the landscapes there and everyone, you know, either is or has had to learn how to be, you know, self-sufficient and able to put up with you know often quite extreme weather and often and and, and able to put up with being you know a long way away from um, most other parts of the country sounds like a beautiful landscape rugged is a word that you used multiple times there and i i have this picture in my mind as to what that means but i wanted to ask you uh quickly because you mentioned a colombian restaurant so um, I imagine there's there's not a restaurant row in uh, in uh, Porto Williams. So, what was this restaurant like, and what were some of the dishes that you enjoyed there, and and some of the drinks? I I imagine in rugged places like this, there's there's a little bit of drinking that goes on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This, this is quite an interesting point to raise up because when I when I visited, I've been to Porto Williams um, uh, a few times, and when I when I visited um, in uh, late 2022. Um, the restaurants and and bars there had suffered many of the same issues that you know restaurants and bars had suffered around the world during the pandemic, and so actually quite a, quite a few of the places that I visited uh, had had closed for the same reasons that restaurants and pubs and so on in London and in New York and all around the world had because it was obviously a very difficult time. Uh, there's there's more restaurants than you might might think. There's 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 several several to choose from. Most most do um, kind of Chilean classics um but uh, yeah this this colombian restaurant um which is in the the city center city center is massively overstating it it's kind of like a uh, maybe maybe a dozen a dozen small small shops um but it's yeah it's it, it's 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 a really fun place um it's uh, you know as i say the, the food and the music's good and it's it's the kind of things that you you know you would you would eat in you know if you're in um bogota or cartagena um so it's kind of hearty hearty meals um uh, and so on and talking about uh, yeah talking about talking about drinks as well then you know in in Tierra de and Patagonia more generally you know there's 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 some there's some great local um breweries craft beer has has, has made has, has made it here as well so you can have some very good um um beers as well in turn, one of one of the favourite bars that I went to, the favourite, my favourite bar of, of my most recent trip, was actually in um, was at Patagonia. So this is so just a bit further north near Torres del Paine National Park, which is the biggest attraction in 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 um, 
Chilean Tierra del Fuego. Even if you haven't been there, you would have seen the, you know, the incredible granite spires that uh, that adorn uh, Chile, uh, Chilean tourist brochures and so on. But the gateway town to that is a place called Puerto Natales, uh, which is also also pretty pretty remote. And um, but that's got a great uh, uh, gin distillery called the Last Resort, uh, the, the um, Last Hope, rather. <laughs> and that was set up by Australian backpackers who were traveling traveling through the region and uh you know came to hike and fell in love with the place and started started um distilling their own gin there's also a whiskey on the uh um in the pipeline too um and they have a, they have a fantastic they have a fantastic bar and they do they do tours as well uh and one of the interesting gins they do they do like a classic london style gin they also do one that's flavored with uh, a berry called calafate so calafate is a patagonian Berry um, is packed with um, vitamin and stuff. It's very, very good for you. But it's also uh, the local story across Patagonia is that if you eat the Calafate berry, uh, then uh, then you'll definitely return to Patagonia in the future. Mm. So, as, as you might expect, it appears in sauces and in ice creams. Um, but this was the first time that I'd had it in a gin, which was uh, which was excellent. So um, yeah, so that's that, that's a bit of a taste of some of the uh, some of the drinks that you can get in this part of the world. I love that they're using the local berry in their gin, and you must love it too because you know you're British, so you're always sampling gin. I would imagine you're always happy to see new and different kinds of gin coming around. I have this vision that we're you know we're between two oceans. We've got the Strait of Magellan to our south, and beyond that, Antarctica. So I imagine the diet is pretty rich in stuff that we're pulling out of the sea uh would that be uh would that be a correct observation yeah so 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 there's 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 a big fishing industry in 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 particularly in chilean patagonia and and, and tierra del fuego um there's lots of salmon um salmon farms which have proved provided lots of jobs but have proved very controversial to say the least there was um near puerto williams there was uh, quite a high profile battle against the opening of a salmon farm uh in the beagle channel and that was um led by members of the indigenous yagan community and that was successful in that they um, um uh, managed to prevent it um opening and expanding um but yeah so salmon you 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 get it you get across across the region my favorite of the the seafood is is something called sendoja which is king crab and these are absolute beasts they're about a meter from uh, the tip of their uh, legs from one leg to to another uh, you know they have to be so big to survive in the frigid waters surround uh tierra del fuego uh, and they're absolutely delicious it's a very lucrative fishing business, um, and um, so yeah, they often appear on, on menus. They don't come cheap, so they're not, um, you know, they're not uh, eaten eaten with wild abandon. But they're yeah, they're they're an absolute must if you're in um, the southern part of South America. Um, but you know, the, the 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 really the key the the key food stuff, the key animal that has shaped the recent history of this part of the world is uh our sheep and, and and lamb of course so so the introduction of um sheep yeah, about 120 years ago 130 years ago um changed the course of um this part of the world it created great fortunes it uh, you know changed the landscapes um you know had a terrible impact on the indigenous populations 
um, and sent, you know, cheap, you know, expensive lamb uh, around the world um, and wool too. And so, you know, having a uh, cordero al palo, which is um, basically slow cooked barbecued lamb, um, is is an absolute essential. And the the uh, stancias, which are the the sheep ranch, dot Patagonia, um, are absolutely the best place to uh, to sample. Probably some of the best land that you ever have, and as and I, and I say that as you know, both a British person and someone with a Welsh girlfriend, and uh, <laughs> Wales is absolutely famous for its lamb. So, um, but Patagonian lamb is is particularly particularly good, um, and it also gives a bit of an insight into the history of it. You know, it's you know, food's wonderful for telling stories. So it's a delicious meal. It gives you an insight into the history of of the of, of the region and it also gives you an insight into the you know into the um culture and lives of the uh, of the of the gauchos of the cowboys who you know still patrol these vast branches and though the industry isn't quite as profitable profitable as it was um you know a, a century ago um it's still it's still um still a big industry there and as you travel and as you travel across these you know incredible landscapes passing fields and you know, Andean peaks and so on. You'll you'll see huge, you know, long, long areas fenced off, um, and and those those are the um, the sheep ranches. And, ma- and many of these you can stay on, as well, which is a which is a wonderful experience. You know, it occurs to me, Shafik, you talked about craft beer. You talked about the local gin distillery, and I noticed that you didn't mention uh, pisco which is something that we've talked about on the podcast with you before, specifically in Argentina and Chile. Well, we're here in Chile. Do we have Pisco here, or is or is this just not something that we would see in this part of uh, of Chile? Yeah, I mean, f- funny enough, I've just written a piece on the on the on the history of uh, Pisco and the uh, and the rivalry between uh, Chile and uh, Peru uh, for a magazine called Tonic. Peru, uh, of course. Yeah, no, yeah. Rest, yeah, rest assured, you very much can get. Um, uh, Pisco, all the way down in Tierra del Fuego and Patagonia, just as you can up in the north in the Atacama Desert. Um, pretty much everywhere you go in Chile, <laughs> you can get you can get a quality okay. a quality Pisco sour. Uh, although I should say at the um, at the Last Hope Bar, they do not serve um, uh, Pisco sours. It's very much um, gin, uh, including their own gins and whiskey. Is the uh, is the order of the day there? But yeah, you 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 can you can get pisco, and it's um, yeah, it's it's just as popular in the uh, in the cold south as it is in the uh, in middle Chile in the north. You mentioned the native population, Shafik, and you said they're often overlooked when folks talk about uh, Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. If we go down here to this part of the world, is is there a good way to maybe immerse ourselves or help to understand or learn about the culture of these native peoples? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this is something I always want to um, you know try and highlight in my in, in my writing because it is it is an aspect that um, is overlooked. Yeah, there's there's a few things that I would recommend when you're in Patagonia, um, uh, in Punta Arenas and and Puerto Natal, particularly. They have um, some excellent museums, uh, history museums that provide a bit of an insight to, you know, the incredible cultures of the indigenous peoples who, who lived lived in the region, and also the impact of uh, the arrival of Europeans of colonialism, and also, you know, crucially, sheep ranching, um, which displaced huge numbers of um, indigenous populations. 
and uh you know in, in some cases sheep ranchers um you know hire people you know to literally hunt um indigenous you know indigenous communities so it's um it's a, it's 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 a tough history but it's 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 one that's that, that, that it's important to um to to learn about um if you go to Tierra del Fuego and if you go to Puerto Williams, there, there is there is um, there's still a Yagan indigenous Yagan community there. Most of the community live in a place called Via Uquica, which is uh, like a neighbourhood, a hamlet just outside the main the main city. And there's also some excellent indigenous um, guides who um, who do kayaking trips, who do horse riding uh, expeditions. Um, who offer cultural experiences? I'd really recommend, you know, if you're if you're interested in 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 in, in learning about um, uh, you know the indigenous Yarkon communities, and also you want to financially support um, these communities, then you know take a tour with it with 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 one of their guides, and uh, yeah, you'll have an incredible experience. Puerto Williams also has an excellent museum that's currently being. Um, um, uh, renovated but will be open for uh, a bit later this year um, and that also offers you know really excellent background on um, you know the tumultuous history of this region and also of the um, you know the the indigenous communities who managed to carve out an incredible existence in one of the um, one of the uh, toughest uh, landscapes on earth. Great advice Shafik and I'm going to second that Hi- hire a local guide um, get to know someone who's living down there and who understands the history and you will be rewarded tenfold for whatever you spend. Um, I wanted to ask you about something else that you did while you were down there. You visited a place called the, uh, Puma Conservation Project. I guess I didn't think that there would be, uh, large cats down there in Tierra del Fuego. I don't know why I thought this, but maybe if you could educate me a little about what's going on down there with the Pumas. Yeah, this this was a really interesting experience, and it actually, you know, because everything's connected, it, it links very closely with the um, you know the sheep ranching industry in Patagonia. So yeah, so so tra- traditionally, you know, Patagonia has been home to huge, you know, you know big cats and it had big puma cons- uh, puma populations. Um, but as you might expect, in a place where the main industry was uh, sheep ranching. Uh, pumas and uh, sheep ranchers, uh, you know, quickly quickly came into conflict. Yeah. And even though the ve- region is is, is vast, um, you know, pumas would often prey on 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 the sheep, and then they would be hunted by the um, by by the ranchers. You know, so huge numbers have been, have been wiped out. You know, dating back, you know, um, a, a century ago, along along with other, you know, um, other other. Uh, native native wildlife and even though it's illegal today um puma hunting still goes still goes on um under under the radar among many many ranches in in patagonia um but there's one 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 called Cerro guido which is just outside um torres del Paine national park um that's that's you know trying to trying to change things and it's launched a pioneering conservation project so years ago you know the 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 estancia uh, you know the you know, gauchos on the estancia would, would would hunt pumas, um, but the you know the the owners have now taken a different approach. Hunting has been bad, and instead they've launched a conservation project to study um, to study the animals. They've set up camera traps. Um, they've also 
They're also using um, humane deterrents, so flashing lights, um, and also these um, incredible dogs that come from the Pyrenees originally that uh, look like sheep, huge, huge sheep, and live amongst the sheep and help to deter the pumas. Um, and it's actually had a, you know, it, it, it's it's already just a few years into the the, the project. Um, it's provided a fascinating insight into, um, you know, the lives of the pumas. Um, they've been able to study, you know, their their behaviours and habitats in in great detail. They've managed to cut down on the number of um, sheep lost to pumas. So they so they they're providing an example for other estancias to say you don't have to hunt pumas to protect your sheep there is a better more humane way and also tourism plays a huge part in this because um alongside the scientific research um they offer they offer tours so um, i spent a day with um one of the estancias puma trackers getting up very very early in the morning far too early in the morning <laughs> to um to to head out into this beautiful landscape no tourists absolutely no tourists at all to study you know to follow following the footsteps of the the trackers see how they work and um you know if you're lucky um and i wasn't lucky so i didn't see a puma on this this occasion but if you're lucky you may well spot a puma in very much in that their natural habitat um but it but it's you know it, it was an incredible incredible experience you, you you learn a huge amount and again it offers you know it's it, it shows estancias and um you know ranches in the region that Hey, it's it's more valuable to you know conserve the pumas and use sustainable, responsible tourism and earn money that way, rather than rather rather continue to 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 hunt them. So this so this project is uh, continuing to expand. Hopefully, other ranches will um will will pick it up. But um again, if you're if you're visiting in the region um, and you want to have a positive impact on the on the local wildlife, um, yeah, this is a great way to do it. This will be something that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to go look for pumas when uh, when I'm in Tierra del Fuego, whenever that happens to be. Um, Shafik, let's go from one end of the earth to another, your corner of the world outside of London, um, because you just wrote a couple really interesting pieces. And before I let you go, I wanted to talk about a couple of them. One is called Canvey Wick, which is near London, really close to London. Um I'm not going to say anything about it. I've read the article. I enjoyed it. But I want to have you describe a little bit about Canvey Wick because you went there. You wrote the piece. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, always, I'm always interested in unexpected landscapes and unexpected, I guess, biodiversity hotspots. And uh, Canvey Wick, which is uh, um, you know, it's around 30 miles east of London in Essex um is very much that and yet you know it's it, it's somewhere that would be often overlooked and a, indeed on first glance doesn't look like uh much much at all so it's 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 on canvey island which is you know, as the name suggests is just off the coast of um of uh, southern southern essex and it's in the thames estuary and it's very much a you know uh, an industrial or post-industrial landscape you know there's lots of out of town shopping centers and um, factories and uh, petrochemical industries and that kind of thing. It's not the prettiest place at first glance and it's super close to London. But on the edge of it is a place called Canby Wick, um, which 
uh, is essentially an abandoned oil refinery. So there were plans to build an oil refinery there in the 1970s. And then the oil shocks and the uh, the unrest in the Middle East in the 1970s made it you know, financially inviable to, to keep building it. So it was abandoned halfway through. The buildings were abandoned. And essentially, for several decades afterwards, nothing happened. It was left to nature. And this, um, you know, this partially contaminated, um, you know, post-industrial landscape um, subsequently has become one of the most biodiverse places in the UK. Uh, it's particularly um, rich in invertebrates. So there's about 1,500 invertebrate species. Uh, it has an incredible amount of, of wildfires, particularly orchids. And funny enough, that's partly because the land was partially contaminated. And this contamination prevented the growth of trees and dominant vegetation that would otherwise have dominated. And it allowed these wildflowers to uh, to grow. So you've got this kind of open flower-rich grasslands. Um, and it's an absolutely fascinating place. It's on, um, you know, it's on a uh, walkway, uh, um, uh, uh, hiking route along the uh, along along the banks of the Thames. But many many people overlook it really. And and, and to, be, to be honest, before I learned about it, um, I hadn't heard about it otherwise. But it's it's been compared. There's there's a lovely lovely description of it by um, uh, by a scientist who described it as a brownfield rainforest. Huh. So it's uh, yeah, it's a fascinating place. It's very easy to get to from from London, and it doesn't fit the fit your typical idea of what a biodiversity hotspot looks like. But um, yeah, it's 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 an absolutely fascinating place. Uh, it also, and I, given that uh, you know, I, I I know your your love of interest in food and drink stories, uh, it's also next to uh, very near to a uh, an excellent pub called the uh, the Lobster Smack. It's a very traditional <laughs> pub. It features in Charles Dickens. Uh, it's got lots of great stories about smuggling and bare, buck, bare knuckle boxing and so on. Uh, and you can get a good pint and a, a, a taste plate a meal, a, t- a t- tasty food there as well. So. Um, yeah, so that's uh, yeah, that's that's something to do. The other reason I was interested in 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 Canvey Wick is it's somewhere it's it's Canvey Island is low lying, partially reclaimed land, and if you go there, there's a serpentine seawall that you know prevents it from flooding. They've had some terrible floods in the past, um, but obviously because of the climate emergency, this is somewhere that's that's going to be particularly at particularly at risk. So, um, so it's kind of you, you see a place that's particularly at risk of the climate emergency, but also you see the you know the rewilding, the you know the 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 importance of these post-industrial landscapes from a nature point of view. So, it kind of you, you, it kind of shows both the problem and one of the solutions, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. I'm fascinated by these post-industrial locations, uh, how cities especially have been reclaiming them. But for the most part, what I see is neighborhoods or places that were warehouse districts or factories or something being turned into artist studios, um, hipster places with cool restaurants and galleries and things like this. This is something completely different. And I love the idea of nature reclaiming what was going to be an oil refinery in essence. This is fantastic. And the timing couldn't be better because it sounds like springtime would be the perfect time to go to see all these wildflowers that you're talking about, Shafik. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I I first visited in the autumn, in the fall, which was 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 not the not the ideal time to do it. But if you if you go, I'd say particularly in in over the next few weeks onwards towards the summer, that's really the really the time to go. The orchids particularly are uh, are, are stunning. Love wild orchids. You recently also wrote a piece for Adventure.com about Britain's rainforests. Now, when I think about places to go see rainforests, I think of Central America. Britain is not the first place that springs to mind, Shafik. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, that was really the, the, the appeal of the piece. I mean, I, I think most people outside of the UK will associate the country with rain, but not with rainforests. <laughs> Believe it or not, kind of dating back... 10,000 years or so to the end of the last ice age, the western um, side of the western coast of, um, of of Britain was covered with with rainforests. Um, you know, according to some estimates, maybe as much as 25% of the uh, the country was covered um, by by these by these rainforests. And these were temperate rainforests, so it was obviously cooler, but but similarly biodiverse. And they're places that were filled with. Uh, mosses and lichen and epiphytes and and, and and that kind of thing. Now, you know, the UK is one of the most, um, you know, um, nature damaged countries in Europe. We have far, far less forest cover than, 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 than our counterparts across the continent. I think only about 13% of the country is covered by forest. And today there are only and within that, there were only tiny, tiny patches, fragments of these uh, of these rainforests, and they've largely, you know, until until recent years, they've drifted out of people's, you know, out of the popular consciousness. Um, but it's still possible to visit them, and apps, and they're, you know, they're just like uh, Canby Wick, they're biodiversity hotspots, and they're they're also tied in with, you know, these incredible myths, legends, and so on. And so I um. Yeah, I, I travelled up to North Wales, and I'm going to apologise in advance for my uh, poor pronunciation. But the uh, I visited the uh, the um, rainforests of Coed, Velenhuid, and Clinic, um, which are in Snowdonia National Park, so a beautiful part of the um, part of the world. But 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 this this patch of rainforest, which is kind of along the you know spread spread across a gorge. Uh, it's next to a uh, power, uh, a hydroelectric power plant. It's not far away from a nuclear power plant. So again, it's not somewhere that you might expect to be a, you know, so rich in, um, rich in wildlife. Um, but it, it, it's it's an incredible place. As soon as you step in, you feel like you're into another realm. It's obviously it's a middle, you know, it's very moist. I mean, North Wales gets a lot of rain. This this place gets around two hundred. Um, days of rain a year, or it rains for two hundred days a year, rather. Um, but it's incredibly rich in birds and insects and and mosses, and you know, there's countless shades of green as as, as you walk through it. Um, yeah, and it's a really interesting place place to explore. It's very understand. I was there with other visitors, um, which I don't think is particularly unusual. Um, and now there are, there are kind of tentative plans to to help. Um, restore and expand the uh, fragments of temperate rainforest like this and there, there are similar um, small patches across you know uh, western Scotland and uh, western England and and uh, as, as, as well as Wales so um, yeah they're very tied into the the Welsh mythology there's lots of wonderful stories about these uh, you know these great trees uh, being magic into life and rising up as a great 
great army. And also, you know, again, because there's no, there's, there's, there's no escape from it, it's, it's very tied into the climate emergency. So when I visited, it was in the summer. We, we'd had record record temperatures. It had been uh, 40 degrees Celsius here in London, which wow. uh, which was unheard of. We'd had wildfires and, and droughts. It was very, very extreme weather. And kind of a stone's throw away, you know, metaphorically speaking, a short drive away from the uh, from this, this rainforest is a place called Fairbourne, which is a, uh, a seaside resort that's going to be one of the first um, towns, uh, places in the UK that will be abandoned because of rising seawater. So, um, so uh, yeah, so it's it, it kind of it's very it's a very evocative place to visit to, to visit the, the the rainforest, see the importance of it because these are huge great carbon sinks as well as being you know a source of um, great biodiversity and you can see that you know there's lots of reasons to protect restore and expand these rainforests and um, yeah if you need a further reminder you just need to take a, tr- a journey to uh, the seaside <laughs> resort of Fairbourne where there's a, a formidable looking seawall but one that will be uh, you know will prove inadequate when, uh, when when as the sea rises over the uh, the, the coming decades um so yeah so uh, yeah if, if you're visiting the uk and you want to see a different side of, of the country then um yeah check out our rainforests and uh yeah and our abandoned oil refineries in essex uh, <laughs> you'll find more than you might expect it's so interesting, Shafik, how you frame that not only as, you know, kind of an oddity that Britain has rainforest, because people obviously don't think about that at first, but also how it relates to climate change. Because we can build as many freaking seawalls as we want. It's not going to keep the sea at bay. Walls can only be so, you know, you can't build an entire wall around the entire island of Britain. I mean, it's just not possible. So, um Interesting way to frame it. Uh, Shafik, it's just been great catching up with you. It's been far too long. Thank you so much because every time I talk to you, it feels like you open up the top of my head and just dump all of this cool stuff inside. I'm I'm always thrilled to talk to you about far-flung places and maybe places closer to home. So thanks again for being on Destination Eat Drink. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Oh, oh, thank you, Brent. It's always an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Uh, yeah, I hope I haven't dumped too much uh, eclectic information into your, into your head over the last uh, last half hour or so. But uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, our chats are always so wide ranging, which is uh, yeah, which is lovely for me. Okay, there you go. I always like having Shafik on the show because he's always heading somewhere off the beaten path that I would never think about, and that's what makes his trips so exciting. Plus. The dude has no fear. You can follow Shafik on his website, shafikmedji.com. I've also got a link to his site in the show notes. Get that at destinationeatdrink.com slash DED226. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, it's all about cheese. From artisan cheese in Toronto to vegan fondue to pimento cheese in North Carolina. So don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about a great vegetarian restaurant in Qashqais, Portugal. Not only do they have great food, but there's a tiny rooftop terrace where you can eat as well. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. 
Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 